Greetings and welcome to HPNA's Podcast Corner, your place for hospice and palliative nursing continual learning. I'm your host, Julie Tanner, Certified Hospice and Palliative Care Registered Nurse and Educator for HPNA. Thank you for joining today's education. Thank you for joining today's Continual Learning Podcast on opioid pain management and serious illness, addressing the educational needs of patients and families across the lifespan. This podcast welcomes Vanessa Batista, Amy Haskap, and Ellen Schreiner as our faculty. As background, the current opioid crisis is creating challenges to patients and families in their comfort with taking opioid medications, and we as nurses continue to express concerns about providing adequate pain management to patients with serious illness. In our podcast, we are going to address the myths and barriers to adequate pain management particularly around opioid administration in hopes of closing this knowledge gap. Welcome. Thank you very much for joining. I'm going to pass the ball over to Amy. Um, So our pediatric case background, um, you're a nurse working in an outpatient pediatric oncology clinic, and today you're going to have a patient named Jonathan who's a six-year-old diagnosed just two weeks prior with metastatic Burkitt lymphoma who started chemotherapy a week ago, and due to that, um, he's not returned yet to school, but he lives at home with his parents and his two siblings. And today he and John, his mother, are here today for the um, routine follow-up scheduled clinic visit to receive his next dose of chemotherapy. A week ago, Jonathan was prescribed oxycodone 2.5 milligrams, Q4 hours, PRN pain. And today while in clinic and you're assessing Jonathan and watching him move about in clinic, you notice that he's moving a little slower than you would anticipate. Um, He's also facial grimacing and guarding during the exam. And when you ask him about his pain, he describes pain in his lower abdomen, back, and right hip. And when asking mom how frequently she's been using the oxycodone in the past week, she tells you she's given him about two to three doses, but she doesn't actually perceive that he's having pain because he only complains of pain when he moves, which is a very common um, statement that I'll hear from families. Um, He doesn't have pain unless he's moving, so I don't think he's really in pain. So it's important now to ask uh, mom a few more questions. beyond just the yes or no questions, does he have pain, how many times are you using the oxycodone? So um, asking those open-ended questions, asking her about Jonathan's activity level, bearing in mind Jonathan's six years old, so you would anticipate Jonathan wanting to play, wanting to participate in activities around the home, and that he would be sleeping well. So asking her about these activities are important to find out what she's seeing also in the home thing. And mom told she's not really seeing him playing much because, again, he doesn't want to move. He's waking up a few times in the middle of the night, but she's able to kind of get him to calm down and go back to sleep. So now you want to find, is mom seeing any correlation between giving him a dose of pain medicine and his activity level? Does she see any improvement in that? Because she may not be seeing improvement in that, um, and that could be partially related. Maybe the dose isn't an appropriate dose for Jonathan, and maybe it's not helping his pain. So maybe adjustments need to be made there. So seeing what she's seen as a, as a result of giving him opioids. And she said, yes, he'll join the family at the dinner table, he'll eat a little bit, and he'll play with his brothers uh, for a little while. So she is able to see a correlation that his improvement does, or his movement does improve with the dose of ox, uh, oxycodone. I find oftentimes when I do assessments and asking parents the frequency for which they're using their any PRN medication at home, that to ask them to reflect upon the time period since your last visit, whether that be a week ago, two weeks ago, a month ago, it's often hard for families to quantify the total number of times that they've used a PRN medication. 
But if you ask them um, about each day, if you say on a daily basis, would you say you give um, your child a dose of opioids? And if they say no, then I may ask further, would you say more often than not on a daily basis, are you giving them opioids? If they are using it on a daily basis, then I'll oftentimes say, are you giving it to them more than once a day, just once a day? And when they're able to break it down, sometimes they can think, you know, you're right, I usually do give it every morning or I do get it every night at bedtime, so that they're better able to um, understand how many times a day they're actually giving the opioids. So here mom responds by saying, I've only given it to him once a day. But the key thing is what she says next. She says, I just don't like to give it to him any more than that. So that tells you it's not necessarily that she doesn't think Jonathan needs the oxycodone more than once a day. It's that she, for some reason, she doesn't want to give it to him more than once a day. So using our reflective listening skills, we say, I hear that you may be concerned about giving him the medicine more than once a day. What is it that you worry about with the oxycodone? And mom's able to reflect back. She's worried of addiction, so she only uses the medicine if she feels like he really needs it. She's also worried about having the medicine in the home, uh, the other siblings finding it and accidentally taking it. And then she's also worried about side effects of the opioids, particularly what if he stops breathing as a result of medicine. So what's important is to not just ignore mom's concerns, because these are legitimate concerns and the concerns that are most likely inhibiting mom from giving him the opioids that he really needs to be able to uh, have the function that you're hoping Jonathan's able to return to. So acknowledging that these medications can be scary, and they can be scary and they can be dangerous if we're not taking them appropriately, but it maybe perhaps recalculating the dose, assuring mom that the dose that Jonathan's prescribed is in fact a safe dose, one of which we don't need to be concerned for Jonathan. Um, also for addiction, we need to address the addiction point. So in a six-year-old, addiction is not something we generally worry about. Um, you know, certainly as they get older, that may be something we have to think about. For, but for a six-year-old, that's just not something we really fear, particularly when they're taking the medicine for pain and the family are, are the ones that are uh, you know, giving the dose of opioids based on the uh, assessment that they're making for pain. Um, we also need to address the fear that the other children are going to get a hold of the medicine and take it accidentally. So we could put the medicine in a lockbox so that the other children can't get it, to which mom says, I hadn't thought about a lockbox. Many families, I think, forget to think about putting the medicine in a safe place under um, lock and key. And then finally, we need to address those symptoms for which mom's worried about. So have you noticed any changes in his breathing or anything else that worries you when you've given him a dose? So what is she seeing in him when she gives him the dose of oxycodone? And she tells you that he's really tolerating it very well. He seems to be doing okay with it. So then we want to kind of, we know mom's concerns, we know what our goals are, so we want to make sure that these are well outlined for the mom so that she clearly understands what the goals are for our pain management. Is it sedation? And, and no, that's not our goal. Our goal is to give him just enough medicine to make him comfortable, to make sure he's able to sleep at night, but also be able to do the things that he wishes to do. And I think, again, acknowledging and, and validating for mom that her fears are are valid, that they these medicines, again, they can be scary. And also bearing in mind what, what Jonathan and his family has been going through over the past week or two. Um, he's newly diagnosed with this cancer. So she's not just coping with the, the idea that now she has to give Jonathan pain meds that she wasn't giving him 
you know, a few weeks ago. She's also dealing with the fact that Jonathan has cancer, that they're starting chemotherapy, that there's a lot of changes happening within Jonathan and their family now. So acknowledging, I can't imagine how frightening this past week has been. You and your family are doing the best you can to cope with all the changes. And again, acknowledging that the medicines are scary, but we want to work together to make a plan so that we all feel comfortable, not just Jonathan, but our team who's prescribing the opioids, that we know Jonathan's getting the relief he needs, as well as the family, and knowing that Jonathan's comfortable as well, as well as comfortable giving the medicines. I also think it's important to acknowledge that if you do feel that a patient's having pain, I think it's appropriate to let the family know that. So you could say, I do worry that Jonathan's having more pain. And I wanted to feel well enough to play and sleep at night. So again, summarizing that goal that we have for our pain management plan. Mom's able to acknowledge she does think he's uncomfortable. She's just simply scared to give him the meds. Um, she knows the meds are there to help him. Um, and she also states that his brothers are confused as to why he doesn't feel like playing with them. And she states that she'll try to give him the medicine more frequently. Now, we could certainly wait until he's due back for his next clinic visit, but that could be a significant amount of time that Jonathan's still in discomfort. So we want to have a check-in point, um, checking in with mom to make sure that the medicines are working, to make sure she doesn't have any more questions, to make sure those side effects that mom is worried about aren't um, being seen in Jonathan. Um, so establishing that follow-up plan with a phone call to check in with her at some designated point in time. Um, asking mom when would be the best time of day to call for uh, to call and check in with her, and she's able to respond. She would rather have Thursdays versus Fridays for follow up. So again, just to kind of highlight a few things that um, in this case study, the things that um, are important to carry forward is, you know, really those open-ended questions, not simply asking for a pain score, not simply asking, do you feel like they're in pain? Do you feel um, that the pain meds are working? Um, to where they could answer as a yes or no. You want to get them to answer with more than just those yes or no questions. Um, and of course, we always want to involve the child um, if we're able to do so in the interview. And in my experience, we can get children children very young um, to also participate in pain. They usually have some word, um, owie, ouchie, um, that they can use to help describe pain. So we want to inc include the children as young as we possibly can. Uh, some key assessment questions that we asked in this case study is one is, again, how is Jonathan interacting in his day-to-day -day routine? Um, how frequently is Jonathan's mom giving him the pain medicine? And what changes does she notice again in him? Does she see the correlation with improvement in his activity level? Um, something we didn't actually address in the case study that might be important is what was it that when mom did give him the dose of opioids, what was it that mom was seeing in Jonathan that made her um, decide at that time that she was going to give him the pain medicine? And again, what worries does she have about the pain regimen? Because a week ago a prescription was written um, and it was the right medicine, the right dose, the right frequency for the right indication. and. We can, ha we can establish the best pain plan, but the problem is, is that that pain plan isn't well understood um, or well accepted by the family. It's simply a plan. It's never going to be executed. And I think that's the key about assessing for pain, that at least I want to make sure we're aware of today. It's not just acknowledging that a patient has pain, yes or no. It's about acknowledging um, how does the family feel about that plan, what fears or concerns they have, and how can we best address those fears or concerns. So again, making sure that we know that we can give the medicine safely, we understand the goals, 
um, acknowledge that they're doing the best job in caring for and monitoring for Johnson's care, and then again, establishing a reassessment plan for which we can check in at a specified time how the pain medicine's doing, any side effects, and how mom's feeling about Jonathan's So then in summary, the assessment of the fears and the uh, concerns that Jonathan's mom had was one, mom expressed fears of addiction for Jonathan, which again, we acknowledge that at this age uh, point in time in Jonathan's life, this is not something we commonly see in this age group. Secondly, mom was fearful for the siblings gaining access to the meds um, by giving her the uh, solution of a lockbox. And then finally, mom was worried about the opioid causing Jonathan to stop breathing or other side effects that may be concerning and addressing, um, asking mom if she is seeing any of those signs or symptoms in Jonathan after giving him the dose of medicine. So I think we've got about uh, three to four minutes that I could answer um, a few questions. Here's a question, Amy. How do you get a lockbox for a patient? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I, sometimes it varies. Sometimes programs and institutions will actually have lockboxes available for some families. Um, pharmacies may also have access to them. Um, otherwise, you can simply buy a any type of box um, at any you know uh, department store. Uh, but sometimes some programs do have lockboxes available. Some hospices um, will also provide lockboxes to families as well. And here's another question. What if the family continues to underdose? Yeah, um, that can also be a, a concern and an issue to address as well. Um, I think it, it's sometimes, again, asking, continuing to ask the family their concerns, um, because perhaps these were three of mom's top concerns that she had, but there may be a thousand other concerns. Um, and one of which she may not feel comfortable addressing initially, or maybe even understand how to verbalize those concerns. So I think continuing to address um, the fears, the worries they have, um, finding out, again, maybe what it is that she's seeing in the child at the time that she is choosing to give the medicine. Um, I think also maybe even helping to point out, I think sometimes families don't always understand the assessment that we're seeing. Um, so, you know, they're not trained caregivers. They're not trained to know necessarily when a child's in pain or some of those um, subtle changes. So I think um, when you see those, like if you see him guarding or facial grimacing, I think pointing those things out and explaining this is why I think he's in pain or this is a time where I wonder if he's in pain or I worry that he's in pain um, and then helping maybe family kind of perhaps close the gap in that time, in that kind of disparity of what you're seeing and what the family is seeing. There's a couple of questions. Uh, how can you get a parent to honestly answer questions about frequency of the giving medication? And also, when you're talking about the siblings, how do you involve the siblings in the conversation about Jonathan? So, um, I think the first question was regarding how do we get the family to honestly answer. You can certainly do pill counts and um, you know, look at the frequency for which you're refilling medications, right, and kind of doing an average, too. Um, that kind of kind of give you a general overview. You know, they've used 30 pills over the last 30 days, so they're taking approximately one pill a day. I mean, if you are if you feel like you're not really getting a good answer from the family, um, you can use a little bit based on the amount of uh, refills or how long it's been since their refill and the quantity you last filled. Um, so that's one way of doing it. I think the other one is to really kind of break it down and sometimes be very specific. Um, when I have a family who's really struggling to kind of 
to recall, I must, I may say, would you say every morning before he goes to school, does he need a dose? Or every do, every night before he goes to bed, do you feel like you give him a dose? Um, to kind of maybe narrow down that time frame even more for the family. But pill counts or volume counts um, can give you kind of a general idea. Of course, it's not going to be perfect. It's not ideal. You don't, you still don't know exactly what's happening with those medicines at home, but it can give you a little bit of a sense and a little bit of guidance. Um, and then the question on the siblings, um, you know, I think it, A, depends on the age of the developmental level of the children, of course. I think probably what is a bigger key to ask the children um, is really what do they understand and what questions do they have? Because they may be um, fearful as to why Jonathan's not playing with them. And so I think more creating a space to um, allow them to share their concerns about what they're seeing in Jonathan, not necessarily um, involving the children and helping you do a pain assessment of Jonathan, but more exploring their feelings or emotions about what they're experiencing in Jonathan, I would say, is probably the most important. And one last question, why are children at a lower risk for addiction? Well, if you recall, addiction is a psychological need for the drug. And so it is, it's switching when you're changing, when you're using the drug for pain um, relief versus when you're using it now for not pain relief. And so if generally at the age of six, they just don't have that desire to um, to seek out the drug for a state of euphoria or a state of other, to, for feeling other things. And so, and then because they're not the ones administering their opioids, it's usually the parents that are administering their opioids. Um, so there's usually some other objective data um, that you are measuring as to when you're giving the opioids. So you can certainly see it in the older kids and probably what you see more in the a little bit older kids is more, um, more coping me mechanisms, not necessarily addiction as it is in, uh, in an adult, but um, in a six-year-old, it's just not something. And you know, and the other piece of addiction is they usually will seek um, uh, illegal behaviors, right, to be able to obtain the drug. And six-year-olds just usually don't have the means or the understanding of how to do that. Um, and so they can certainly have physical dependence. They can certainly have all those other things, but just the, the risk of addiction is just really very low in this age range. Uh, and Vanessa is our next presenter. Right. Hi, everyone. Good afternoon. We are next going to talk about a young adult. And in this scenario, you are the clinic nurse at a college. And this young man named Thomas, who is 19 years old, so probably uh, either a late freshman or an early sophomore, has uh, osteosarcoma. And he comes to see you in the infirmary or the local clinic at college. He's currently receiving chemotherapy and radiation, and he had one hospitalization about two months ago for mucositis and pain. He currently takes about 100 or takes 180 milligrams of morphine a day as prescribed, and he is followed by both the oncology team and the palliative care team at home. And he is coming today with escalating leg pain. So he is a sophomore and lives with his friends. They live off campus, which is about two hours from home, and that means he's about two hours away from his oncology and palliative care teams. He is a vibrant young man, and he's majoring in sociology and has a 3.8 GPA with plans to go to graduate school to become a social worker. So this is what he tells you today. I know that I'm taking a lot of morphine and everyone thinks I'm drug seeking and that's why I'm asking for more. But I want to be clear that I am not. My mother is currently in jail for illegal activities related to opioids. I'm not like her and my experiences with her are what made me want to study social work. 
I want to graduate more than anything and help other kids like me, but I can't sit in class and pay attention when I'm in this much pain. I wish I didn't need so much pain medicine, but the morphine is the only thing that is helping, and I really want to get to graduation. I'm open to anything else that might help, but my leg is hurting so bad, and I just need to get through class. So here are some follow-up questions you may want to ask Thomas at this point. Uh, what makes you think others suspect you are drug-seeking? Are you yourself worried about addiction? What are you doing to keep your medication safe from misuse by others? And what are your expectations for me as your nurse today? And this is a little bit of a tricky situation because I'd imagine that most college infirmary or school nurses are not used to prescribing opioids, um, especially at this high level. So your action plan is to contact uh, the oncologist and or palliative care team about Thomas's concerns of ongoing pain, and obviously you would speak with Thomas first and get his permission to do that before talking with them, and perhaps even suggest talking with them together at some point. The goals would be to reduce the need for breakthrough pain uh, medication and to allow Thomas to attend class with minimal pain. You plan to rotate his medication to hydromorphone instead of morphine and consider adding a fentanyl patch. So the assessment of opioid fears and myths at this point is that there's obviously a fear of addiction here. There are concerns about access to the opioids in his apartment, just like there were concerns in Amy's case, right? They're worried about other people getting a hold of the medication. And uh, Thomas's fear is also if I ask for more pain medication, or which would also be a myth, a fear and a myth, right, is that the team will think that I am drug seeking. So let's talk about this case a little bit. What questions do you have at this point? So the, some of uh, somebody has already put in here that they were they didn't think he was drug seeking, but they were concerned about his roommates. So before this slide came up, someone had commented there. Okay, concerned about the roommates getting a hold of the medication. You mean? Yes, that's what it looks like. Yes. Okay. And not they uh, also they didn't think he was drug seeking, but were concerned enough to ask more questions. I think that's a really good point, right? You'd obviously. I think it would be healthy to have some level of concern, not necessarily for outright drug seeking, but for someone who is on this large amount of medication that you have not met before, you would want to ask a lot of questions in the first time um, in meeting them. And what is one of the other things that the nurse suggested doing that would be helpful? So just to finish the point I was making, I think certainly the initial question or statement that was made about uh, asking a lot more questions, even though you may not think he's drug-seeking, is an excellent point. You obviously would want to ask a lot of questions, especially in a situation where you're the school nurse and probably not prescribing medications regularly like this. might be the first time you've experienced a patient who is, or, you know, a student who is on this much pain medication. So certainly asking a lot of questions. And I think a point we also want to make here is asking to speak with the oncology or palliative care team, whoever it is that is, or pain team, or whoever it might be that is prescribing the medication for Thomas. You want to talk with them, you want to get a sense that obviously have a relationship with him and would know the background and how they got to prescribing that level of pain medication. So I just want to make that point that, yes, absolutely, we would ask more questions. To address some of the other medications that were suggested here and also the idea about uh, perhaps just increasing the dose before changing to another medication, certainly. 
You could certainly increase the dose here. I think the reason why I would suggest at this point switching to something like hydromorphone rather than increasing the morphine right away is just that you're getting to high numbers and it would be easier for the volume of medication to start to switch over to hydromorphone, um, considering that you'll probably need to keep escalating and as someone said, disease progressing and the pain may get worse. I'd probably want to think about switching just so that, you know, given the conversion from morphine to hydromorphone, the dose would be a little bit smaller in actual pill burden if using hydromorphone. So I would think about the switch for that reason and for along those same lines of perhaps using a fentanyl patch to be giving some around-the-clock coverage without having to take more, more um, pills by mouth. I think certainly the suggestions for steroids or adding in, um, you know, a... Some, an adjuvant medication like uh, gabapentin could, would certainly be something worth trying. <clears throat> Excuse me, if I were going to add in gabapentin, I'd want to know a little bit more about is he actually having nerve pain, and I would want to make sure I started that at night because his concern is getting through class, and gabapentin can make people a little bit sleepy during the day, and so I would um, perhaps consider that, but certainly ask more about him for him to describe exactly the quality of the pain and see if that might be a good choice. Uh, I think steroids would be helpful. Um, Decadrom might also be helpful, but again, thinking about a long-term plan. So, um, you know, perhaps not necessarily wanting high-dose steroids if you're thinking you're going to do this for a very long time. Again, depending on knowing more about the patient's prognosis or where they are in their disease course. Uh, changing to methadone is also another good idea and something we could certainly consider. I would maybe not do that quite yet. I might start by switching to um, hydromorphone first, but I think that's certainly a good suggestion and not one that is by any stretch of the imagination wrong. I think that's a matter of, you know, there are many different things that we can do, and it's actually an excellent point in this case that if you were to ask every single one of the nearly 275 people that are on right now, we all might have a little bit of a different plan, but that's okay as long as we get to a place where the patient or the student, this young man, Thomas, is um, has his pain better controlled. It doesn't have to be done exactly the same way. So certainly switching over to methadone is a great suggestion. Um, I think, you know, adding in complementary therapies, absolutely. And I'm not sure if people can answer me back, but what are some complementary therapies you might think of for Thomas right now with his pain? Someone did off, offer a suggestion of counseling because of his counseling. mother's uh, history. Mother's history, yep. Counseling would be a great idea. What else? Massage, Massage. imagery, Guided imagery, great. Meditation, a lot of people putting in meditation, meditation. breathing, acupuncture, yoga. Acupuncture. Excellent, yoga, Reiki, right? Battlefield acupuncture, acupuncture massage, yes. distraction, relaxation techniques, aromatherapy, music therapy, energy healing. Boy, look at all these great ideas. Great. Absolutely, these are all great suggestions. I think in any pain management plan, we think about the whole person and what we can do besides just the medication regimen, right? I want to ask you for a minute here because we're probably getting ready to switch to the next speaker, but in the minute or so I have left, I would ask you any other thoughts about really the the concern for addiction or the um, drug-seeking behavior. Does anybody have any uh, last comments on that? Do you, do you, about addiction, do you ask all of your patients this question? If not, when do you identify the need to ask about it? Ask what, just ask about the concern for it or? Uh, um, 
in the Jonathan one, you ask if he was worried about addiction. Do you ask all the patients in this? It's always good to address the topic of addiction if it comes up as a fear. I wouldn't necessarily, you know, in, in I wouldn't necessarily bring it up if it doesn't get brought up to me. I have kind of feel out the situation. I think in this particular case with Thomas, I would absolutely address it because he's coming out and telling you, right, that people are worried on drug seeking. My mother has, you know, um, a drug abuse, a substance abuse problem and is in jail for it. He's naming it and telling you he's worried about it, so I'd absolutely address it. Do I address it with every single patient? I think the first time I prescribe an opioid, yes, I would address it and just put it out there and, you know, it's a, it's a teachable moment to say that people usually have some fears and concerns when you prescribe an opioid for the first time and so you always want to address them in a way where you're giving them the proper information about it. So I would absolutely the first time say either if they come out and ask about addiction, you want to give them correct information about it. If they don't, I'd say there might be a fear of addiction, but I just want to assure you with proper use of the medications that it's not a concern. We'll closely monitor how you're using them and, you know, a lot of the points that Amy just made about the way you would talk through this with the family. So I usually do address it initially. I wouldn't necessarily address it every single time I change a dose, but absolutely in this case of Thomas where he is concerned about it, I would address it. And as a again, a school nurse meeting him for the first time, you would absolutely want to reach out and get more information because while I wouldn't necessarily think he's drug-seeking, I would be and should be concerned about just writing for another, you know, dose increase without talking to the team that's been caring for him all along and really knows him. But it would be absolutely appropriate with their, um, you know, working with them as a team to raise the dose of medication here to change to another opioid to consider adding something else on because clearly, um, this is this is not enough, and you'd want to adjust the pain management plan, and also make sure you're adding something for breakthrough as well, so that he can sit through class. And one final point I'll make is that in a case like this, you might also consider at a certain point um, adding on a stimulant if you feel like the um, he really can't get through class and is getting drowsy from the medication. I don't necessarily; it's kind of another topic, and I don't necessarily always. Um, consider using stimulants, but in a case like this for a college student who's doing really well in school and having trouble getting through the day, I would. So, okay, I think that's it um, for my section here. Thank you so much for your thoughtful questions and comments, and we will move along to the next speaker. Okay, so um, for our case at this point now, you are the case manager that's been asked to go in and see um, the daughter of an 84-year-old patient that is going to be going home. She has um, middle to late stage dementia and has been newly diagnosed with a stage four ovarian cancer. Um, her daughter is a surrogate decision maker and this is the, the lady that you're going to be meeting with this afternoon. Mary is our patient and she lives with her daughter in their single family home. And Mary has, is, her daughter has elected to take Mary home with hospice care. The purpose of your meeting today is to educate um, her daughter on the transition from hospital to home with hospice and what all will be entailed with that. So you go into the room and you um, introduce yourself to Mary's daughter and explain your purpose for your visit that you would like to talk about um, the plan for her mom and ask Mary what her, 
um, the daughter, what her plans are for Mary when she comes home. So it's a very open-ended introduction. You set the stage and her daughter's kind of nervous and she's like, oh, she has so many questions. She doesn't even know where to start. She's never taken anyone home before on hospice. She's worried about, is she gonna be able to take care of her mom? And she basically tells you her goals for, for bringing her mom home. One, she wants to make sure that she's comfortable, but she has a lot of fears and anxieties that she's gonna, gonna be able to do that. And she's a little nervous about the fact that she's heard she's gonna have to be giving her some morphine. Next slide, please. So your first question to this nervous daughter is, well, what have you heard about the morphine? What does, you know, your, your idea is to find out what does she know? So she proceeds to tell you that she's, she's heard that this is an addictive medication, that people stop breathing on this medicine. It's, you know, so dangerous and she just, she just can't have it in the house. She doesn't want anything to do with it. She's afraid her mother will become addicted to this. And, you know, what will the neighbors think? Mom is now an addict. And oh, what if she gives her the medicine and she stops breathing? She, no, 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 just not, not gonna have it, not gonna use that at all. And you can, you can tell from her behavior and from her apprehension that this just absolutely is not, is not gonna be working. You need to assess the situation here and calm her down a little bit and remind Mary, the daughter, what, you know, what's our goal here for Mary? The purpose of the medication is to promote her comfort, remind her that she's gonna get the support of the hospice team, that they're gonna monitor her mom for side effects, and then do a little more investigation on what she's been, you know, what's been going on while she's been in the hospital. Has mom had any problems with the um, use of morphine in the hospital? Has she had any side effects? Once we've established that that hasn't happened, we can provide the education that side effects from the morphine while it is possible. Once someone has been on it for a while, those side effects are, are diminished greatly. As far as the addiction, much like the, the case of the, the six-year-old, addiction is, is relatively rare in the elderly population for pretty much the same reasons that addiction is a psychological illness and they don't have the capacity to understand the psychological need, at least not at dementia. Um, at that time, not gonna find that as a problem. But it also gives us a great idea to talk about the safety of the medications and the storage of them to prevent them from being misused by anyone else. So it gives us the opportunity to ask the daughter, where are you going to store these medications? Review the safekeeping of the medications. As you, you see on the slide here, well, she's gonna probably keep them handy for her in the dining room. And it gives us then the opportunity to review those. Here we, we then talk about, well, maybe you need to think about keeping them in a locked box so that you have access to them and maybe designating someone else to be able to give those medications to mom so that you don't have to worry about them being mishandled or having someone else borrow them or maybe, and then the daughter's response to that is, well, you know, her, my sister has had a problem in the past. 
and you know, I, I kind of forgot about that. I'll, and she'll get one right away so that they can keep them safe. What happens when, you know, mom passes away after, after the fact? So she's a little nervous about what to do with the medications afterwards. And so then at that point, you can talk about how to dispose of the medications when they're not needed anymore. Reassure her that the hospice team will help them with the disposal of the medicines so that they're, they're disposed of correctly. Throughout that whole conversation, much like the conversations with the other age groups, you're still using um, active listening skills, being compassionate in, in preparing for the discharge home with hospice, anticipating the things that you will need to um, prepare them for, but using the open-ended questions so that it allows them to bring out um, what they're fearing, what their what their concerns are, much like the other other people. If you just go in and ask them, you know, you're going to give this medication when their pain score is that, and here's how in the elderly you're going to describe their pain. If they're fidgeting or if they're calling out, we're going to assume that's pain. So I want you to give this medication. You're missing the um, the real reason for the assessment skills. We're missing the, the safety. We're missing the, um, the fears that that family may have as to what they're going to do. This daughter is clearly telling us, I've never done this before. How am I going to handle this? Again, open-ended questions. What have you heard about these medications? Rather than just saying, okay, here's your morphine. This is what you're going to do. She may not have given you any any reason to indicate that she didn't want to use those medicines. She would have just taken your information and gone. So when you're looking at what you're edu educating for, you want to emphasize the goals for the medications. We want to make sure that we're keeping her comfortable. That's why we're using the medications so that she understands what the purpose of it is. Address her fears, what she's afraid of the respiratory depression, giving her mother too much medicine. We're going to educate her on how much she's going to get the support from the hospice team. She's not going to have to do any of this alone. And that she, she will know that they will always have somebody there to be able to call, to get her questions answered, and, and feel very much in control of what's going on with her mom once she gets home. We're looking at where she's going to store the medication and addressing where it's going to be and the, perhaps the dining room table is not the most convenient place while it works for getting the medication available. The safety issue of having it sitting out on the table for everyone else is not probably the best spot in the house. Addressing the fact that other people would have access to it and she obviously um, acknowledge the fact that her sister may have had a history of it and shouldn't be having it out where she could reach it. And then the safe disposal of it so that after, after mom passed away, it was what readily disposed of and not left for other people, and it was disposed of in a safe manner. So the assessment of the fears and the myths, much, to the, much like the other um, age groups, we still needed to address the fears of addiction, even though mom was now, you know, well out of, out of a worry of that type. Concerns about access to the, of the opioids for not only 
um, people in the house, but anyone else that would be coming in and out of the house and making the daughter aware that she needed to be concerned about that. And then addressing the daughter's concern about giving her mother too much medication and giving her time to voice those opinion, those fears and reassuring her that she would not have, you know, she would have the support of people um, helping her to monitor that. When we'll be able to take some questions for you, Ellen, as well. Yeah. Julie, it's, uh, you have a couple slides you want to talk to. Yeah, thank you all for, for three excellent cases that, that did cover the, the lifespan. So what are the actual facts? Um, these are kind of our takeaways for you all today. Pain assessment and education are essential for quality pain management. That, that, that is a fact. And the, the assessment of that component is a skill set that we as nurses can always be learning how to do better. So the process of you sitting on this webinar today hopefully is going to enhance that skill set for you. Medication fears, myths, and safe administration have to be assessed to ensure that we're getting the patient and the family to the outcome that we've all agreed upon. You know, this is a combined goal of care, shared decision-making. So are we working in that direction, meeting the patient and the family's expectations, and also addressing the community safety component? And then assessing patient and family's understanding of exactly what it is that we're asking them to do and how can they give us information back so that we know that our plan is moving forward. And I think Amy's case really emphasized that point with um, looking at the individualized needs of the patients or the families. And then nurses with their thorough assessment and education skills, we are the essential link to the healthcare team to support safe and effective opioid use for adequate pain management. Our assessment skills are what make us who we are as a profession, and the better we can be with those assessment skills, the more information that we can, we can provide and, and use um, in caring for our patients and families. So then we can now open up. We've got about five minutes left for questions. Um, before we go into questions, I would like to thank everybody again for joining us today. And Amy and Ellen and Vanessa, uh, thank you all for your, for your excellent presentations. And any questions that we don't get to, we will follow up with, uh, with answers as we can take those questions and drill down into them. How do you reassure that opiates will not will not kill the patient? Yeah, so um, usually we start with, you know, just standardized dosing for opioids um, as far as what's recommended, um, and then, of course, adjust accordingly. I have some children that will um, require much less than that than the standardized dose of um, opioids, and then I have some that definitely require more. Certainly asking if they're opioid naive or tolerant uh, type patients can also help you guide um, where you're going to start your dosing. Um, but, you know, typically I think one of the questions was how do you assure your patients that you're not going to die from a result of opioids? You know, it's really not a um, overly common finding, at least I can speak to in children, it's not a common um, thing. Um, I think that I, I tend to personally start a little on the lower end of opioid dosing than the higher end of dosing just for that um, potential concern or at least um, not 
causing too many side effects that then might result in the family not wanting to use opioids at all in the future. Um, I think you also have to be mindful if you are giving a dose of opioids in the hospital setting versus this is a medicine that you're going to send them home with just because they're not going to be as well monitored in an outpatient setting as what you would an inpatient. Um, certainly kids can develop tolerance. I heard that was a question. Um, you know, all patients can develop tolerance and, and sometimes you treat tolerance by increasing the dose. Sometimes you treat that by decreasing the frequency for which you're using meds. Um, sometimes, you know, even switching opioids to a different opioid is sometimes required. Um, and then as far as, I, I also heard a question regarding weaning. Um, and Vanessa and Ellen, you can certainly chime in too, but you know, if they're using it, if, if they're strictly on a PRN medication and they're not, then that happens as a self-wean because, right, you're only taking the PRN medication when you're having pain. So as your pain improves, then you're using less PRN meds and you kind of do a self-wean. Um, if you're on a long-acting opioid, like a fentanyl patch or methadone or something like that, then um, it, it kind of depends on how long, A, they've been on the medicine, um, in terms of how quickly you'll do the wean um, or slowly you'll do the wean if they've been on it for a while. Um, and then, you know, we I think every institution probably has different mechanisms for weaning of meds, um, but you do need to be mindful of how long they've been on the med and what your dose of your current medication regimen is. But if it's parent only, then they, they kind of self-wean themselves. And there's a question about what's the appropriate dose for the fentanyl patch for the college student, and also how do you answer family questions about naloxone? Yeah, um, so the fentanyl patch, it would I would have to um, figure out exactly what dose I would start him on. Um, I would calculate it would probably be maybe a 30 month patch, but I'd have to um, figure that out. And I would never just give you a dose off the top of my head without doing the math, but I would um, I would guess it would probably be somewhere around a 30 microgram per hour patch, but I would um, check that again. And um, sorry, the second part of the question was about... Talking about naloxone with the family. Talking about naloxone. Why would you talk about naloxone? Like, what's, I need to know more about that, because I wouldn't necessarily talk You're about overdosing, naloxone right apparently, yeah. I, I can touch on that just briefly. Um, sometimes our hospice patients will, families will ask about that because they're afraid, they, especially with the opioid crisis, they've heard, oh, you know, we should have the, the naloxone on hand for, for in case we, they overdose on it. And I, I would say what, from our perspective is we, we discourage that. We tell them that we use dosages so low that we, you know, we're not worried about that. And, you know, Oftentimes, naloxone in the hands of the wrong person can do just as much harm as it can help. So we prefer not to put it in our homes, and and that's how we, you know, we've I've handled it in the past. Because the last thing I want someone to do with a patient, especially at hospice level, that has finally gotten some pain relief and to be able to go to sleep, have one of my family members think that they've overdosed their patient and totally take them out of a comfort zone. Yeah, and thank you, Ellen. I mean, I think just to be I would not bring up naloxone unless somebody asked me about right. it specifically. Right. We, don't, we don't, you know, prescribe it routinely for all the reasons you just said. So if the family general didn't ask me about the fear of, you know, giving them too much or naloxone, I would not bring up naloxone because we don't prescribe it, as you just said. So directly go there, I would not. 
Thank you, Vanessa, Ellen, and Amy for that wonderful presentation. Your expert knowledge has offered us an exceptional perspective on this complicated topic. For our listeners, if you'd like to view this presentation and access additional resources from this episode, please visit us at the link in the description. For additional resources, please visit advancingexpertcare.org. Thank you.